Hello and welcome to The Note, a podcast on experiments in self-organization and social innovation. In this show, we want to explore ideas, concepts and organizational principles that lead toward connectedness with each other and the surrounding world. This podcast is part of a social lab in Vienna, Austria. For more information on what we do or if you want to reach out, visit our website. You'll find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Node. My name is Jonas and today I'm going to be talking to Jim Mack, who is the Field Operations Coordinator at the UC Davis Student Farm. Hey Jim, thanks for taking the time uh, to be on this podcast. Um, and maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like you said, I'm the Field Operations Coordinator for the UC Davis Student Farm. Uh, I come to this position after farming on my own for about 20 years and then uh, also uh, growing up in a farming community and farming with my family uh, uh, as a child and then, uh, you know, went off to college and studied business and came back to my family's farm after doing some other uh, careers that uh, were not related to farming, but discovered I really liked farming. And so then I farmed on my own. and. After a while, uh, I decided that it was uh, fun to teach people about farming. So that's how I ended up at the UC Davis Student Farm. Cool. And um, I read about the UC Davis Student Farm a little bit, and I read that it is run as a CSA, um, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what, what a CSA is and, and how it's different from a regular farm. Yeah, sure. And uh, the CSA is the probably the biggest uh, marketing outlet that we have for the student farm, but we also do grow produce that uh, the university purchases from the student farm, which allows us to fund our uh, student employees. So everything that we grow and sell at the student farm is actually put back into our programs and really to provide employment for students. And uh, the big part is the Community Supported Agriculture, the CSA. And it is a subscription system where people pay upfront, and each week they get a mixed, uh, we give them away in baskets, uh, but other CSAs put them in boxes, but we use bushel baskets, and we give a mixed variety of produce every week, usually uh, at a minimum 12 items, and uh, like today, we're busy packing, and there are going to be 15 items in there, and uh, it's whatever is ripe and ready so you know you people belong and become absolutely seasonal eaters for northern california because uh it's it's whatever we have each week and so this week you know we're coming up on the big uh american thanksgiving holiday so we try to put a lot of the very traditional holiday foods into the baskets like squashes and sweet potatoes and carrots and onions and things that people would really cook with for the holiday And it runs year-round. You know, we're in Northern California, so we don't really uh, have to stop farming. We don't have snow. We have some cold weather, and we have rainy weather. Uh, and the rain is only in the winter, not in the summer. So we have a Mediterranean climate that allows us to grow a huge variety of things year-round. And we have students here pretty much year-round, aside when there's a pandemic going on, um, that are eager and interested in you know, planting each week and, and all of the things that we have to do each week to keep a farm running. 
Cool. So, so how does it work? Is um, are the members or the subscribers of the baskets in for the whole season, or can they come in and and leave whenever they feel like it? Or good question. So you sign up for ten weeks at a time, and the reason it's ten weeks at a time is that UC Davis runs on a quarterly system where each quarter is ten weeks long. So. Uh, People sign up for 10 weeks and you can decide if you want to continue after that 10 weeks and continue and continue. Or if you're done, you can say I'm done and then it opens back up. And one thing I failed to mention is the uh, community supported agriculture is, is not open to the general public. It's only open to students, faculty and staff of the university because we want to be a good uh, farm neighbor. Uh, we have a lot of advantages that our local farms don't have. Uh, You know, and so we don't want to compete with our our local farmers, especially since a lot of the local farmers are people that used to be student farmers at at the UC Davis student farm. So we try to be good to them and good to our neighbors, and uh, we just keep it within the university. So that's another reason it's ten weeks is uh, because we're on the quarterly system. If a student is graduating and they happen to belong to the CSA, they don't have to give up however many weeks of produce because. They're no longer at the university. So that's how that works. Cool. Uh, the, the reason I'm asking is because I um, actually also work at a CSA here in Austria. And um, the term CSA, since it's like an English term, um, it's used in the international um, farming community um, for different, um, um, yeah, different kinds of farms that all have this community-supported community aspect to them. But um, with us, with our farm, it works a little bit different. Um, people sign up for the whole season and there's also an aspect of solidarity to it. Um, so you pay as much as you can. Um, there's like an average that we tell people uh, that we need. Um, but if they can't meet that, it's fine. And if they can pay a little bit more, it's even better. Um, so is, do you do it in that way too? Or is it like a fixed price subscription? You know, uh, I'm glad you bring that up because for many years it was a fixed price and our CSA is a little bit different. I used to run my own CSA on my own farm and I ran it much like what you were describing with more of a sliding scale and um, people committed for the whole season. It, you know, I needed a dedicated group of people that were, were kind of committed to supporting the farm for the whole the whole time I was growing. Uh, here is a little different. So we have this kind of hybrid sort of model, but uh For many years, we, we just used a fixed price. You know, this is how much it is. This is, we just had one price. But uh, the students, and you know, this is one thing about the UC Davis student farm, is everything we do is actually driven by what the students want to do. So it's not the staff telling them, well, this is what you do now. We uh, have lots of um, opportunities for students to give feedback to the student farm and help develop our programs so that it reflects what they desire to do. And we have a particular student who is, uh, she's getting her degree in economics, and she is really interested in having a more equitable uh, pay payment system that uh, is more flexible for people. And uh, we're going to probably, we're still trying to figure out how to do it, but install a sliding scale system, as well as also a sort of a altruistic system where if people want to purchase uh, an additional share for uh, to feed a food insecure uh, student on campus, then we're going to offer that too. But we haven't uh, 
quite got it completely figured out yet, but we're working on it. I, I can definitely say um, I, I also studied agriculture in Germany. And if there would have been an opportunity like this um, to do hands-on work while I'm studying, that would have been amazing. <laughs> so um, really cool that, that you, you're running this program. Um, you mentioned that uh, the students are getting involved in everything and, and the program is very much shaped by the wishes of the students. So what's the, the organizational process like? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's a little bit different now because of the pandemic, but normally we have uh, uh, almost a quarterly meeting where we, we uh, it doesn't happen in the summer, which is why I say almost quarterly, um, where we get together with the students, the students provide feedback, uh, and there's sort of the meetings are, are themed for each quarter. So in the spring, we have a thing we call the Farm Forum, and that's really the visioning and, and um directional kind of uh, meeting where people come and we do, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, the World Cafe kind of model where you uh, you have a topic at each table and people can go to the topic and discuss and and then present to the group afterwards. So we do we do that kind of a system and that's where we kind of kind of go through and figure out how is it going to look next year and what is it, what is our big visions that we want to work for like Can we figure out how to raise money so that we can build uh, a commercial kitchen so that we can process uh, leftover or slightly uh, less than cosmetically perfect produce into something that's usable for our members and for students? Um, so that's one. Then um, right about this time of the year, we, we do what we call Farmsgiving and we come back and we talk. We, we have a meal together and we have uh, a discussion about what we're thankful for. And then that kind of sows the seeds for what happens in um, the winter quarter, which is then the particular crop planning year. So we figure out what we want to grow and how much we want to grow. And then also do some, take the opportunity to do a little bit of education about crop rotation and um, seasonality and business planning. Um, and that's, that's driven, uh, the instruction's done by the staff, but it's driven by the students. So that's, that's kind of generally the process. And then there's, uh, throughout the year, uh, every quarter we have uh, training for our new employees as well as our returning employees. And at those, each one of those meetings, there's an opportunity for them to put in ideas for what they want to do. And then throughout the quarter, you can actually um, sign up for different kinds of internships. And the way... Uh, you choose your internship, you can be creating a new um, program if that's what you want to do. And so we have some students that are really interested in uh, uh, growing more fruit trees. So we're going to have, hopefully, uh, if the university allows us to have those students, then we'll be planning, they'll be doing the planning of an orchard and figuring out the varieties and uh, where we're going to put it and all that kind of stuff. But You know, that's how we have uh, the different parts of the, of the farm now. We have a vegetable part. We have a, an olive grove. We have uh, what we call the ecological garden, which is more home, home scale, uh, hands-on um, backyard farming versus the market garden, which is more mechanized production agriculture. Yeah, I was just going to ask what kinds of crops you're growing and, um, and what the produce is, but um, yeah. 
that pretty much answered that. <laughs> well, I can tell you that we have uh, our spreadsheet has about 267 di different lines on it, which uh, cover more than 60 <laughs> various crops. A, a lot of variety. <laughs> a lot of variety, you know, and that th those all those lines are like, you know, when we grow tomatoes, we grow maybe 20 varieties. When we grow peppers, we grow 10 varieties. Mm. Cabbages, we grow... Yeah. five varieties kales five varieties so lots lots and lots of different varieties and then lots and lots of different crops and why is that important to to grow a big variety of different crops um to um listeners who might not be familiar with um the workings of biodiversity and um and variety in agriculture <laughs> yeah so uh so the first reason we grow a variety of crops is to keep our customers excited and interested uh But uh, we also need to grow a variety of crops in case we lose one crop. We've got something else. You know, when you have, uh, you know, a community supported agriculture is a, is a bond of trust between the consumer and the farm. And we as the farm want to ensure that we are keeping up our end of the agreement and always feeding those people because they're relying on us for their food. So we can't just say, well, we don't have anything for you this week. So uh, we are um, always ensuring that we have plenty to harvest. And if it doesn't go into the CSA, then it goes to the university. And if it doesn't go to the university, it goes to feed uh, food insecure students. So we have luckily lots of outlets for all the different uh, uh, volumes of produce that we have, because sometimes we have just enough for the CSA and sometimes we have way too much. And then uh, you, you talked about biological diversity. So absolutely super important. In fact, we even had an issue this year because uh, our winter selection of crops are not that diverse. I mean, we, we have, and most, most winter crops aren't all that diverse. We have lettuces and we have basically cabbages, you know, and various, uh, <laughs> uh, we have beets and we have spinach, you know. But uh, we had a particular pest this year, the Bagrata bug, which I don't know if you have that in Austria or Germany, but um, it's a real problem here. And it is a, uh, it's devastating to uh, brassicas, all of them. And so uh, we, we had a huge infestation of them in September and October. And so we had to do uh, a really quick, like, okay, emergency plan. What happens if we lose all of our brassicas? And so we turned to growing more lettuces, more uh, various root crops like carrots and beets, as well as uh, quickly ordering some um, chicory seeds. So radicchios, frises, escaroles, uh, some of the other more exotic Italian chicories like puntarella and, you know, We were just basically at that point trying to cover <laughs> whatever we could that was not a brassica. And so uh, we're going to have some wild <laughs> diversity uh, later in the winter because the brassicas, we managed to get ahead of the infestation. So our brassicas look fantastic now. And we have a whole field full of really <laughs> interesting and exotic Italian greens coming up. So it'll be fun for the members. Uh, that, that's a comfortable situation to be in to have too much to harvest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's, we try to always be that way so that we're always, um, you know, we can always sleep at night and feel secure that we've got food for people. And how, how does it work with the, the, um, the produce that's too much for the CSA? It just goes to the university and 
a cafeteria kitchen or? In normal years when we have, uh, you know, in normal years we will have on campus, living on campus, uh, almost 20,000 students. Uh, right now we have 1,800 students living on campus. So in normal years, mm. the university takes a large amount of produce from us. More pro they need more produce than we can possibly grow, really. But uh, we grow yeah. things specifically for them that, that may sometimes go into the CSA. This year, we had to shift and grow only CSA crops. So the university does take some of it. Um, but, you know, we're still trying to figure it out because... This is the first pandemic we've ever farmed through, so we don't really know how it's going to work. Yeah. Uh, so we have excess, and we do have uh, quite a bit of um, uh, food insecure students. Uh, now, of course, most of them are not on campus right now, uh, so we always grow some food to address the, that. But uh, what we've started to do is, uh, actually starting this week, we are... Uh, sending produce to uh, local small uh, communities around us that do not that, that have a lot of food insecurities, especially there. We're right in the middle of Northern California farm country, and we have a lot of immigrant workers, and they uh, a lot of them are not getting as much work as they need to get right now because of the pandemic. And so there, there's a lot of food insecurity on the countryside. So we are sending out produce uh, into those smaller communities to make it available to them. It's a lot of different connections that the, that the farm has with with the wider community and and surroundings. It sounds sounds really um, connected. <laughs> We try to be. Uh, you know, it's one thing about being at a university is you can end up being a little uh, island. And we try not to be an island. Mm. We try to really reach out and get out of our little uh, narrow little world and make sure that we are interacting with the farm community and making our um, You know, we have quite a bit of knowledge base here and we have quite a few resources that we can offer to other small farmers who need to maybe see how to do some things, especially beginning farmers who may not know how to really set up small scale market garden type farms. And so we try to be good neighbors and uh, share what we know and uh, support our community. And um, getting back to the, the students aspect of things or like the educational aspect, um What do you feel like is most beneficial to students that work at the farm? Um, if there's one or two things that you can pinpoint. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's great. Uh, for most of the students, they have never, uh, when they come here, have never in their lives really grown anything. Most of our students come from cities. Um, the ones that are at the student farm, you know, uh, the... UC Davis is an agricultural university, and we do have many, many students that come uh, from farming families and have a lot of farming background. And those are not the ones that end up at the student farm usually. We, once in a while, we have uh, those folks. Um, so the, the ones we have are, are usually city kids who have maybe gone to a farmer's market um, have a lot of interest in learning and so we get students out here and just teach them how to grow things and that's probably the most magical thing just to see the sort of the 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 little click when they figure out seed to plant to harvest and how that all how everything you do has to be done in order and done right and and how 
if you do it right, you end up with great things. And if you don't do it right, which is absolutely a great learning lesson, and we always have these, uh, <laughs> you don't have anything to harvest. So it's, it's good. Um, and we teach, I think one thing, especially with uh, students that come here, this is a hard university to, to get into. So a lot of these students maybe have never um, worked with their hands before. And they never had, um, their high school career was spent getting good grades and getting high test scores so they could get here. And so never got the mm -hmm. chance to work over the summer with their hands. And so we teach people how to work with their hands and with their bodies. And that just because you're working with your hands doesn't mean you're not working with your head. And so we try to really bring the, the science and the, the labor and the critical thinking skills, we try to bring them all together and use that as a community of, of learners. Uh, I consider myself to be a learner every day. And so we try to instill that into the students is that it's a constant process of doing and learning, doing and learning, doing and learning. And that's really the driving philosophy behind what we do. That sounds very much different uh, from the conventional agricultural approach of um, I'm the farmer, I'm here to grow stuff and um, nature has to listen to me now and I'll, I'll apply my, my, my skills and my knowledge and, <laughs> um, and if it doesn't work, I'll just put in more fertilizer or more um, plant protection um, substances and then um, it has to work. <laughs> Right. We don't have a lot of those options. We're a certified organic farm, you know. Uh, we're a very low input farm. We make all of our own compost here and uh, rely on very little uh, purchased materials in terms of fertility. And aside from when we have really bad um, outbreaks, like the Bagrata bugs, um, mm. we don't apply anything other than... Uh, irrigation water to our plants you know we we try to the our kind of farming is to be uh the most effective farmer which is out in the field every day looking at your plants and trying to assess what what it is you can do which is usually you know weeding and watering and making sure that uh that that they're growing you know so that's the best fertilizer is the yeah. farmer in the field you know looking and thinking you know so that's sort of, that's that's the way we go about it, and uh, it's worked for us since the 1970s. So we keep doing it. Is the the student farm run since the 1970s? Started in 1977 by students. Oh wow, that's that's a long heritage. Of We're one of the older student farms in um, in the U.S., and we are. Hmm. Uh, there are more farms kind of like us. We're we're. Uh, Some universities have much bigger student farms and they're more um, production ag oriented. And ours is very much more um, smaller market garden intensive agriculture oriented. And that's just the way it's always been. We do, we are a 22 acre property and we do have uh, nine acres in production for the vegetables that for the CSA uh, we've been talking about. But then the rest of it is actually research fields. And we do uh, seed breeding research primarily, as well as um, we do have um, uh, bees 
because we have organic land. So mm-hmm. we, uh, the university, we partner with a, another department that needed organic space for their bees. So we keep, we keep bees and provide uh, organic habitat for bees. Cool. You mentioned the compost. Um, what, what do you make the compost from? Yeah, well, one of the advantages of uh, being at UC Davis is that there are, is a huge animal science department. So we uh, on campus <laughs> have, a, have a dairy, we have a beef production facility, swine production facility, goats, chickens, and sheep. And uh, they're mm-hmm. all housed different ways. And so we use um, primarily goat manure and uh, sheep manure. Uh, sometimes uh, manure from the uh, beef uh, research, as well as uh, we also have an equestrian center. So we'll sometimes use horse manure. We like anything that uh, comes in that has a lot of straw in it. So uh, that's why mm-hmm. we use the goats and the and the sheep primarily. Um, and there's the university had it's a problem for the university because there's so much of it because there the animal science department is mm-hmm. so big um we produce about um oh man i think last year we did maybe 120,000 uh pounds of uh compost i mean it's a lot of compost a lot of compost yeah and uh we 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 apply compost before every one of our plantings, so that's why we we use so much compost. Yeah. Some farms, you know, will will make a bunch of compost or get a bunch of compost, spread it on once a year, and then grow for the year. Uh, we every time we are replanting a particular space, we add compost, which is why it's our primary source of fertility. Yeah, yeah. Imagine those um, those fields to be really really rich in, in nutrients and. Um, and very fertile if you apply compost that that often <laughs> they're pretty good uh the wet it's really hard in the west to maintain uh soil organic matter we tend to uh burn it out really fast so even with all that compost okay. that we add uh we're 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 only at about three percent and we're just kind of trying to keep we would like to get to five percent organic matter but we just can never get there um but we, we keep cover cropping and we keep adding compost. So we just keep going. Do you know why that is? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember. It was explained to me by a soil scientist. It's one of the difficulties of uh, farming in the, in the West. The way our soil chemistry is and the way our rainfalls work, um, we tend not to be able to hold on to it very well. Unlike, you know, around mm-hmm. the, the Midwest parts of the of the united states uh it's they seem to be able to build organic matter uh in a much more stable form ours just tends to be rather unstable and we don't create you know we don't create long lasting uh organic matter so we just keep adding yeah i don't know (laughs) i wish i were i'm not a soil scientist so i can't explain it very well (sighs) yeah yeah that's fine (laughs) um and Maybe you can expand a little bit uh, on why soil organic matter is um, is very beneficial. Right. Well, it's really the the engine that runs the um, an organic system. So everything on the planet is uh, made up of carbon, 
So we need to keep adding carbon into the system so that the micronutrients can have things to make all their little micronutrient bodies out of. And the interactions between the micronutrients in the soil and the plant roots are really what makes plants grow and thrive. So in a way, adding uh, lots of organic matter is feeding those microscopic things in our soil that really are doing the work of fertilizing and growing plants. You know, we think we're adding fertilizer, but it's not really. It's it's all those things we can't see. So we're we're feeding all those those creatures so that they'll work for us. And that's that's the way I think of adding the importance of adding organic matter. It's uh, it's sort of like the fuel for the fire. If you don't have enough organic matter, then you don't have mm -hmm. enough of the uh, the the microscopic um, farmers working with you. So feeding them is important. <laughs> yeah. It runs the engine. Uh, that's a beautiful picture that I came across a couple of times um, by now. To You're not actually feeding the plant, but you're feeding the soil, and then the soil feeds your plant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really um, interesting perspective. It is, isn't it? And it, uh, it runs I, a little I, bit counter to what I think we as humans generally can comprehend. It... it a lot of humans <laughs> just think that soil is inert and not a living thing. And it takes a while to redo your thinking so that you can understand that the soil is alive all the time. And just like us, it needs food <laughs> and water. Otherwise, it isn't alive. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole world that uh, that opens up below the ground with, with like trillions of little organisms that, that all interact with each other to... Um, produce this this uh, net of of interconnectedness and exactly and um, in the end this is what makes uh, the existence or the growth of plants possible um, yeah it's really mind-blowing yeah it is isn't it yeah that and that and that <laughs> plants can convert solar energy into uh, you know energy that they can use I mean it's just like how does that work I don't you know we can't lay in the sun and have feel full you know and have energy yeah it's, it's wild. So, some people would argue they can but um i've never seen anyone <laughs> it's never worked for me i just fall asleep yeah <laughs> um I, i have a really big question for you um so from your perspective what do you think is the the biggest challenge for the global society right now um in in the early 2020s for the years to come Oh, well, it's not really an agricultural answer, but I think the biggest challenge is for people to, um, to actually listen to each other and under, understand and respect each other, even if you don't agree with them and view uh, other people's opinions and philosophies as valid and um, respect it. And I think if we did that... Mm -hmm. We could solve things like global warming and we could make sure that people have work while at the same time making sure that this little island that we live on in outer space will continue to be here for us. Because if we don't start listening and loving each other, then it's all over. You know, the earth is perfectly happy to wipe us off the face of the planet and start over, which it will do. It has done it before. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, we as humans have this amazing ability to do lots of things. And one of the things that we have the amazing ability to do is be incredibly stupid about uh, all the things that are around us and think that we can control them. So listening, loving, and talking to each other, I think would go a long way to solving a lot of the things that we are faced with and going to be faced with in the next 50 to 100 years. That might not be the answer you're looking for. That, that's that's perfect. <laughs> um, no, this is this podcast is not um, strictly about agriculture or strictly about any topic. Um, it's about exploring concepts and ideas that that bring people together. And um, so that was that's spot on, um, <laughs> um, right right in the center of the theme. <laughs> So uh, related to that, um, what, what lets you be hopeful um, about the future and what, what's, what's a positive development that you see in the world? Ah, you know, uh, I don't know if I can do it, answer it on the world stage, but every day I uh, just find joy being surrounded by the students I work with. And we have had some conflicts here at the student farm recently around uh, the election and different political views. Mm. And I watched students figure out how to talk to each other and be kind to each other and understand each other and not agree and work together. And uh, so that gives me tremendous hope that... Uh, especially we here in the United States as a nation could do that, a, a reconciliation process. And if we could do that here, then I think we can start getting outside and reconciling around the world. So it starts small and gets big. So that's, that's my hope. And that's what gives me hope when I get here. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, I think people inherently actually want to be kind and, and love each other, but sometimes are misdirected and are able to look at to, are, are able to look at a group and say well they're bad but then they meet the individual and they realize oh i actually like this person i don't agree with this person but i can understand why they say what they say so my hope is that we can uh, all do more of listening and less talking at each other but that, that gives me hope that that my students did that. Mm -hmm. And what do you think um, makes people look at other groups and say they they are the bad guys? Yeah, I. Uh, it seems to be uh, almost a, a, a human adaptation for survival. Like, I wonder if we weren't at one time living in our caves, and this is our cave, and our cave is great, and then those guys over there, Those guys over there, I don't like those guys over there because they come and take our berries, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And the people over there are like living in their cave and like, this cave is great, but I don't like those guys over there because they come and take our berries. You know, it's this way that we somehow circle our, uh, our little group around us and feel supported by making somebody else bad. And I, I mm -hmm. don't know. That's just, it seems like we maybe evolved this way. But then... We always, at least almost always, when you are interacting with someone individually, you go, oh, oh that's, that's, that person's fine. I don't know why I was thinking that. <laughs> and then we group them. And then we go, no, the group is bad. The person, that person's great. 
And I, I just don't know why, but humans always do it. It, it, it must go back yeah. to the first time we stood up and started forming little groups, you know, that, that we used as protection. And maybe that's, I, I, don't, I don't really understand. I'm not an anthropologist either. This is just the things I think about when I'm out working in the field. Mm. So um, related to that, or maybe on the flip side, what do you think are the conditions that give rise to these um, empathetic moments where students of opposing political views can start listening to each other and, and um, accept each other's um, perspective and still get along? Yeah, uh, what I think what for sure happened in this case is they actually talked to the person and asked questions instead of mm -hmm. accusing them of being a racist or a xenophobe. Uh, they actually stopped, talked, listened. And the person that this particular event happened gave real answers and not xenophobic answers and not racist answers. Totally different than what you would think mm. based on, uh, you know, the news and uh, the story about this group versus that group. You know, it was the actual human interaction and understanding that this person uh, really was thinking, well, this is the best, this is the best political solution for the United States because of these, these, these reasons, not because of the hateful reasons, but because of mostly economic reasons. And being able to have a conversation and understand that the person across from you um, isn't doing anything out of hate. They're all, you know, we, we always do things mm. that we think is a good idea. So finding out what yeah. the idea is, is more important than finding out what the, you know, the philosophy attached to a group is. And I think actually speaking mm. to people, finding out what they think. And having a real conversation about it, not a, using talking points and, and bludgeoning them with opinion and vice versa, then you can, you can, you can reconcile. You can find out, okay, well, that's valid. I, I get that. I see why you're, you're thinking that. Okay. I don't agree, but I see why you're thinking it at least. And that's okay. We don't, I don't want everyone to think the same here. That would be really boring. Hmm. But I want to be able to talk <laughs> to everybody about it. So, yeah, that can be a, a starting point from where um, a common agreement can be met, right? Um, and and a, a common perspective onto the world can, can be constructed in, in a same, like a similar conversation setting. Yeah, and I think we have um, unfortunately lost the art of actually having those kind of reasonable conversations. We seem to... Everybody falls into the sort of uh, kind of the, uh, it's almost like you're on a news show and you have to argue with each other. You know, like people have f forgotten how to actually debate factually and intelligently about what their philosophy is. Instead, they're now yelling at each other. Just because they don't that we're not modeling that well, at least in the United States, we are not modeling conversation about important things very well. We're modeling them as arguments when they should be discussions and debates. 
but not arguments. Mm. And so arguments sell news ratings and advertisers support TV stations where there's arguments, you know, and newspapers. But I would like to see us be able to actually intelligently debate things and not yell at each other. Mm. Yeah, arguments just make better headlines and and um, thumb video thumbnails than these two people just had a really reasonable conversation and now agree. <laughs> yeah, who would tune into that on on the news? Nobody wants to see that, right? That's just too. Yeah. That's just too normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As they say in the newspapers, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. <laughs> We're just. Uh, I think one of the things with uh, cell phones and we're so connected all the time that we're constantly hit with that kind of of messaging and we forget how to be humans with each other mm. so um one more thing i want to talk to you about is um that you're not only a teacher at uc davis and a farmer but uh, you're also um a coach i do coaching and, yeah and um i wanted to ask you if you could um explain to us what what the concept of coaching is about and uh, what do you think how that can tie into um, all these developments that we just talked about and how they can help? Yeah. Um, yeah. I use coaching uh, philosophies every day. Um, I don't work with clients much anymore, I, but I, I have in the past. Um, I just don't have time to take individual clients now. So I'm sort of a coach. I'm mostly a uh using coaching philosophies in working with my students. And so the most important one is um, to recognize that, and, and this is the kind of the philosophy around coaching that I do, is that um, we're all basically leading uh, our lives uh, as a heroic journey. We are on this journey of our lives, and we are the hero in our own story. And we have... Uh, We, we face obstacles and we always really have the answer ourselves, but we may not be hearing it. And so what I, in a nutshell, do as a coach is to help people follow their heroic journey, to be the heroes of their own lives and to help them see um, that they have their own answer. And, and mostly what I do is, is clarify um, not by telling them, but by usually reflecting back what they're saying to me in a way that they can hear it and that they realize, oh, I know what to do now. I mean, that's basically what I do as a coach. It's, it's believing in people and to help people live the hero's, hero's life that they all, that we're all here for. We're just, we're just here to live this life. And you want to live a life that has meaning and purpose. That's your hero's journey. So helping you along the path and to just see clearly how to take the next step is what I do. I could give you a lot more <laughs> words about it, but that's really it. That's fine. Um, that, that sounds very comprehensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, otherwise, it's just about funny little techniques and stuff, which are really just a way to help people see what they already know. But... Um, A lot of times it, it's it's like hidden by a fog. Like you have the answer, but there's kind of a fog in front of you. And I just help lift the fog. And it, you know, it can take multiple times. Like you, it's all 
life is is a series of small steps. So sometimes the fog lifts and you take one step and oh, there's more fog. Then we keep helping you see how to lift the fog every day. And I do that especially with students. Cool. Sounds like the students can benefit from that a lot, especially um, when they are very new to farming and have maybe um, different pre-conceptualized ideas about uh, how farming works or um, what farming is or how they can um, not do um, head work when they're doing hands work. Um, yeah. Especially, yeah, it, it happens a lot for students. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really I think the student farm functions very well at is it provides a space for students outside of the academic world that lets them um, reach out a little bit, uh, unwind a little bit from all of the intense academic work and um, find their place that uh, invigorates them. And then sometimes when you're out there in the field, or at least when I'm out there in the field with them, these other things come up for them that are around their academics or their future, you know, and, and that there's, there's moments to coach them about agriculture and there's moments to coach them about life. And it all happens out on the farm. You know, it's, it's a great place to be, to sit, to be safe and to explore and to really uh, connect with what's important to you. Whether that's agriculture or, you know, whatever you're studying in school or, or none of those things. To find out that it's okay to connect with something else. I mean, that, that happens a lot. You know, you, you're 18 and you make a choice about your life. Who's ready to do that? You know, <laughs> I wasn't. It's just part of the journey. <laughs> and, to, and to know that it's okay, it's just yeah. part of the journey. Well, I think that um, the students at UC Davis can be very glad that... Um, you are there to to um, instruct them and coach them and, and um, help them on this journey. Well, it's really great work for me. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I talk about the hero's journey. And um, I think if you'd asked me 20 years ago when I was farming, I would not expect that I would be here doing what I do. And now that I'm here, it it's just like the perfect. I got here and things all went kind of click. Like, oh, there it is. I didn't know. So... At this point in my life, this is the spot, and it's great. Every day is a new adventure, and uh, I really enjoy doing the agricultural work and doing the work with people and, and being able to kind of juggle all the different aspects of, of farming and humanity. Yeah. Well, I think um, that wraps things up really nicely. Um, thank you, Jim, for um, taking the time to... Uh, listen to some of my questions and give really interesting answers um, I really enjoyed it and I hope our listeners did so too and maybe we'll talk again sometime in the future I hope so, yeah, thank you for having me it's nice to be here stay safe out there yeah, you too, bye bye